You're listening to Cleanish Reads episode 44, Book Club Week Short Story Edition. Welcome to Cleanish Reads. I'm your host, Amy Hall. You can trust me to sift out the garbage and recommend the best books that you can be excited to read on your own and with your family. Thanks for joining me on this journey to learn and grow through uplifting reads. Hello, my friends. This was a little bit of a different book club selection this month with several short stories to discuss. So without further ado, we will get right to it. I am here today with one of my favorite people. And I say that every time because everyone I interview is one of my favorite people, but this really is my favorite person. I have my husband Clayton with me and he has graciously agreed to talk about short stories with me. So thanks for being here, Clay. I was a little reluctant to be on your podcast, but like hanging out with you. <laughs> Thank you. I think you were a little jealous that Mitch got to discuss the financial book with me in April. That would have been my first choice. <laughs> I know you like books. to talk about things financial, but you also enjoy short stories. So thanks for being willing to talk about a few with me today. And you actually picked the first short story and it does have to do with financial matters. So, <laughs> yeah, I came across the story after um, reading a financial blog and it was one of this blog author's favorite short stories. Yeah. And I did like it. It's The Fall of Edward Barnard by William Somerset Maugham. And in this story, Edward loses his inheritance and goes to Tahiti to make his fortune so he can marry Isabel. And when he doesn't come home, his friend Bateman travels to Tahiti to see that Edward's ideas about happiness have changed and he's not going back to Chicago or Isabel. So can a person have both what Edward ends up wanting and what Bateman wants? So Edward decides he just wants beauty, truth, and goodness in life, and Bateman is, I guess, more of the material values of American life, traditional American life. Do you think a person can have both of those things or do they have to choose? I don't think you can have both. I think you have to make a compromise somewhere along the spectrum. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example where somebody could have both. I kind of feel like you can. I kind of feel like, I mean, we'll get to it later, but the character of Isabel, we're we are left at the end wondering, is it poor Edward or is it poor Isabel? But I kind of think that she, she's a little hurt that Edward didn't come back for her. But at the same time, I think she'll have a good life with Bateman and she... She's going to have somebody that loves her. Hopefully she cares about him too. And she has the material things that she's used to. I just, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that Edward had to give up everything to be happy. I think Edward was, would have happily married Isabel, but I think he knew that he didn't want to go back to that life where he was busy all the time, didn't have time to reflect on things, time to relax and enjoy nature. He would be hustling and working hard 
trying to make enough money to keep up with all the trappings. And he knew that Isabel would not be happy without a lot of those material possessions. So that's why I think you, you can't have it all. You have to make some sacrifice somewhere. Yeah, I guess so. To have all those material things takes so much time to maintain them, to pay for them. But don't you think Edward kind of took it to a new level? Like he wasn't just living a little bit simpler life. He's all of a sudden like barely working, living in a shack, doesn't care about wearing clothing or what he's eating or really anything. I think he still cares about things. He just cares about different things. So he cares more about enjoying nature, enjoying um, developing relationships with people. He becomes good friends with Arnold Jackson and develops some other good friends and has a girlfriend on the island. And so he's able to put his time into focusing more on those things than on developing his business prospects. Yeah. So he is on one end of the extreme. Yeah. I, and you bring up Arnold Jackson. I kind of feel like those two tend to be the epitome of laziness in my mind. And maybe that's unfair to say because Arnold Jackson's obviously doing okay in his life in Tahiti, but they seem to be like trying to do as little work as possible so that they can just quote, enjoy the rest of their days. I guess why I feel like it's lazy is because in my life, if I, yeah, I don't want to be working constantly because you need to enjoy life. But if I don't feel like I've accomplished something during the day or during my week, then my mental health is not very good. Like, I feel like what's the purpose of me being here? Like I need to have things that I'm working on and then it gives me satisfaction in my day. And I feel like they get the most satisfaction out of doing as little as possible. I would say they're trying to lead a, a very balanced life. So Edward still works when he goes to the island. He still has a job. It's just a lower pace, low stress job that he enjoys. That's true. And even though he doesn't get paid as much, he doesn't seem to mind because he enjoys the less stressed job. Yeah, he's realized he likes some of the simpler things in life and finds more contentment with those things. Do you think that if Isabel agreed to come live the simpler life with him, he would have stayed with her? Or do you think he just didn't care about that anymore? I think he still would have married her if she had wanted to come and do that. But I think he knew her well enough to know that she enjoyed some of the, some of the parties and the cultural events that took place in her hometown. And that's what she wanted. Yeah, I did. I didn't like how he never even told her, though. Like, he didn't write her a letter telling her that his ways had changed. She didn't even know that he'd not been doing his other job for over a year. He kind of, like, kept it a secret. I don't really know why he did that. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me either. And he had met this new girl, had a new girlfriend that he wanted to marry. 
Yeah. It's almost like he and Arnold Jackson, they were on the right track. Like I think being able to be content in more of a simple life is good, but it's almost like they forgot about taking any responsibility for their past life, like communicating with people, what was going on with them or, you know, Arnold Jackson's old wife, maybe back then they couldn't get a divorce or anything. And maybe this was the nicest thing was to just not talk to her and move on and marry someone else. But I feel like Edward could have at least written Isabel a letter, like cutting it off and saying, Hey, you should marry my buddy Bateman because <laughs> I've moved on. So, yeah, the story doesn't really go into any detail about what Arnold Jackson and his wife, what happened there. So it's left up to the reader to imagine. Yeah. But in Edward's case, he did continue to write Isabel. He just, his style of letters gradually changed over time and he didn't tell didn't her any tell her details. <laughs> he wasn't looking forward to returning to Chicago any longer. Yeah. So maybe he was trying to give a hint that way, but he could have been a little more upfront with her. So do you, who do you think ended up with the better deal in the end? Because like I said, Isabel ends it by saying, oh, poor Edward, as she's looking forward to her awesome, wealthy life with Bateman. Do you think that she ended up with the better end of the deal or Edward did? I think you have to figure out what makes you happy, but looking at it from my, from my point of view, I think Edward ended up with the better life because people would spend a lot of money to go on vacation in Tahiti. And he was able to live there, and it didn't cost him very much. He had good friends, good life, and worked to keep him busy. Whereas Bateman was back to the grind and may dream of taking a vacation to Tahiti one day. I guess in a way, both of them got what they wanted and maybe feel sorry for the other person, thinking that the other person's life is not the one that they would wish. So I guess in that way, it's a happy ending. Yeah. It's kind of, what do you value more, Eastern or Western type of thought? Do you think that how you grew up has affected you in terms of how you find happiness in life and the amount of work you expect yourself to do? That's a good question. I think um, definitely just watching my dad, I wanted to get a job where I didn't have to work tons and would be able to afford stuff. So definitely I think growing up shaped how much I'd want to work. Yeah, I think, um, I think it, it does affect us a little bit, you know, where we came from and maybe our relationship to money and things, whether we feel like we grew up without enough and want more for our future, or we had plenty and we don't care about it as much or want to keep it that way. I think it's interesting to see how people started and then what they find is important to work toward in the end. Yeah. I always thought it was interesting for us. So we, uh, didn't have much money for several years. I've got a better job. We were able to buy a much nicer house. And I quickly figured out that having a nicer house made me no happier. 
and started to realize that a lot of the material things I just don't care about. Yeah, it is nice to not expect yourself to be caught in that rat race of having to do more and have more and keep up with people because that doesn't really bring happiness, I don't think. Okay, now let's talk about The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. This is kind of a well-known classic short story with the three wishes that end badly for the wisher. And I was trying to think of any example of a story with wishes where it ends happily, and I couldn't really think of one. I mean, I guess in Aladdin, it kind of ends up good in the end. (laughs) Could you think of any examples? I don't really know of any. But most of the stories that I read, um, I like Stephen King, so a lot of his things end up poorly for a lot of the characters. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's what he likes to write. Um, it was so interesting to me. There's usually in these three wishes stories, there's like a warning beforehand that the wisher totally ignores. And in this case, the old sergeant warns the White family to just throw the paw into the fire. It's only going to bring tragedy. And then here I have a quote from him. The sergeant says, It had a spell put on it by an old faker, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. So it's almost like he's saying, Wishes are bad because we just need to live our lives. And if you interfere with fate, you're going to be in trouble. But of course, Mr. White doesn't listen, keeps the monkey's paw, eventually wishing for 100 pounds. Were you surprised by how he gets the 100 pounds? I feel like I've read this story years ago, so I knew it was ominous every time they would wish for something. But I think the temptation, if you you actually had something where you could make three wishes the temptation to make a wish would be so strong because you could have anything you wanted. And I don't think they fully realized how bad things would turn out. Yeah, especially Mr. White, who made the actual wish. I don't think he really believed it was going to happen or cared that much because he's very content in his life. And his son and wife kind of goad him into doing it, and he just kind of does it for fun. And Yeah, he had trouble even thinking of something to wish for. Yeah, which makes me sad that it ended up badly for him because he's not like a greedy person that was wishing for something crazy. I had a bad feeling, too, that the wish was going to go poorly, but I was not expecting the son to die and then the company pay 100 pounds to recompense the family. That kind of took me by surprise. Um, why? What do you think would have happened if Mr. White hadn't made that next wish before his wife. So his wife wishes, or he, his wife convinces him to wish for his son back. And then his last wish he makes right before she opens the door. And we don't know exactly what the wish is. I assume he's wishing for his son to not come back or to disappear or whatever, do you think it was going to be like a corpse showing up at the door? 
Well, judging by how the first wish turned out, I don't think the second one would have turned out very well. And the second wish was made in haste. Uh, his wife sort of lost her mind and yes. was demanding that he make this second wish. And they hadn't really thought it through very well, what they were wishing for. So I think he probably pictured that his son was alive, just walked out of his grave and came back to the house. And it would have been an ugly sight. Right. I kind of like how the author didn't say exactly what he wished for for the third wish. Because obviously, no matter how you word it, it's probably not going to go well. <laughs> but they open the door and nothing's there. And you're like, whew, what happened? Um, if you were given a wish to spend, what would you wish for? That's a good question. I seriously cannot think of any way to word any type of positive wish that wouldn't get totally messed up. I definitely wouldn't want to use the monkey's paw. No, that was kind of creepy. And how it moved yeah. when they wished. <laughs> yeah, I'd only make wishes if it was guaranteed to be good for everybody. So you would have thrown the monkey's paw into the fire? I think so. I think I would have been tempted to think of something, but like I said, I wish for a hundred pounds seems like a pretty safe wish. So I don't know how I could have done it better than that. I thought they did the best they could. Um, why do you think wishes are typically shown to be so bad? I think it makes for an interesting story. That's for sure. I don't think it's inherently bad to wish for things or work towards things. Maybe it's showing you're you're getting something for nothing, which can't happen. Yeah, that's a good point. I liked the contrast between they were so happy and content before and then after they wished, all of a sudden they were miserable. So I was thinking that maybe it just shows that we should appreciate what we have and not always be wishing for something else because that could be way worse than what we currently enjoy. Anything else you... Well, I think it's funny that, that we're talking about this immediately after talking about the story where money didn't matter so much to the character. Right. So in this one, the person wishes for money and loses a his relationship with his son because his son dies and he realizes how terrible his life is and his wife is going crazy because they've lost that whereas money really wouldn't have made them any happier so true we got to talk about two financially savvy short stories <laughs> did you trick me into doing that no <laughs> this is one you picked all right, our next short story is Charles by Shirley Jackson. So we read this one out loud together, and neither one of us was surprised. We figured out right away that Lori was Charles. He was just using a different name for the stuff he was doing. Um, 
With that being said, even though we saw right through that, I still think that the story, it made me think a little bit about our behavior and parenting and things like that. So we're still going to talk about it. Why do you think Lori invented Charles instead of just coming home and telling his parents like, or not telling his parents, like not saying anything about it? I'm sure he didn't want to get in trouble from his parents. And it was sort of a way to confess to them what he was doing without feeling any consequences. Yeah, and maybe in some way he was proud of what he was doing. Like, look what I'm doing in my class. or But it's not really me, it's this Yeah, other look kid. what I'm getting away with. Do you think he was acting out for attention from the other students? Or why do you think he's acting like this? What would make a kindergartner act like that in school? I'm not sure. It seemed like his mom paid attention to him and wanted to find out how his day was. It seemed like his dad was reading the newspaper and not really paying attention to him a couple times. So maybe he was feeling a lack of attention there. That's the only guess I have based on the context. Yeah, right away, I liked how the story opened and the author's basically saying, like, the day he started kindergarten, he changed how he dressed. He was talking more rudely. I think of kindergartners as still kind of sweet and innocent. <laughs> but for some reason, this kid did not want to be from day one. Do you think that Lori's parents should have realized the truth sooner about who Charles really was? I don't know how they could have. It sounds like from how his mom describes him, that this was completely out of character for him. So I don't know how they would have figured it out right away. He did a good job of disguising it, but he did seem to know an awful lot about what Charles did every day. <laughs> yeah, and it was very handy that anytime Charles had to stay late after school because he was in trouble, the whole class would stay after which explained why Lori was home late on those days. Yeah, he covered his tracks pretty well. Yeah. I think a lot of times it's easier for us to see the flaws in others more than ourselves. I loved the part where the mom goes to the PTA meeting and she's looking around the room and she says something like, none of the other moms looked haggard enough to be the mom of Charles. And... I just thought that was so ironic. Who knows if the other moms are looking around thinking the same thing. Oh, that mom looks like <laughs> she could be the mother of Charles. Or if even the other kids in the class would go home talking about what Lori was doing. I thought it was interesting, probably for the sake of the story, but no other parent or the teacher ever alerted the mom that it was her child. She was just kind of like floating along, believing it was somebody else. Yeah, it's hard to know if he really was a misbehaved kid or not. Maybe all the kids were like that in the class. And kudos to that teacher for being so patient. <laughs> <laughs> Kindergarten teachers probably have a hard job, I would imagine. All right, last we're going to talk about The Minority Report by Philip K. Dick. I really wanted to read this one when I found out that that movie from 2002 starring Tom Cruise was based off of a classic short story. I knew I wanted to read it. I really liked that movie. 
I like the premise that the police are trying to eliminate crime by using predictive policing. So they're trying to predict crimes before they happen, and then the whole thing is proven to be flawed. So what did you think of the main character, Anderton? So Anderton was the chief who had developed, helped develop the pre-crime. And he had devoted his life to this. And so it seemed like he had invested so much into this that um, even if it didn't work, he wasn't going to let it fail. Yeah, which is basically what happens in the end. He has he seems to have so much faith in the system that even though, you know, people are kind of looking at the poor living conditions of like the precogs, which you could say maybe they're not aware of it or whatever, and then imprisoning would-be criminals, whether they're actually going to do something or not, he just completely believes in it. And then... He's shown to commit murder preliminarily, I guess you could say. I think I made up that word. And he immediately blames everything else. Like there's um Yeah, he's suspicious corruption. that the, the new police chief has set him up. He's suspicious his wife may have set him up, that the army may have set him up. He thinks something is wrong with what someone else is doing and that the pre-crime, the precogs still are able to decipher what's accurate. Yeah. Um, I think something that I thought that the movie did a little better than the short story, and I really liked the short story. I thought it was a great idea, very well done. But I liked how in the movie they have Anderton with a crime happening to him before pre-crime so his son gets kidnapped which makes him which kind of shows why he's so violently passionate about it like if only that could have been stopped before it happened then I would still have my son with me which is kind of this emotional thing that carries you through the movie until the last scene where his wife's pregnant again and whatever um in this one I kept thinking that he was gonna give up on it, like realize that it wasn't working and that they were imprisoning people unfairly. But he sticks to it so strongly that he even murders the guy. He murders Kaplan to save pre-crime, to show that it did say the right thing about him, even though he didn't want to murder him. Yeah, this was very different. The book and the or the short story in the movie are quite different because it's a different person who's being set up for the crime and the outcome is very, very different. Yeah, and obviously in a full-length movie, you can go, they have more details and plot things happening. Um, but I did like the short story. I, I think I... It was maybe a confusing part, but also I really liked that scene where they're, are they like in the town square or something? They're about to, I think Kaplan is about to announce that pre-crime is ending. 
Yes. So the, the military officer has lost power because of pre-crime. So he's wanting to get rid of pre-crime to, re to gain his power back. So he's happy to, to make this public announcement and prove that pre-crime does not work. Yeah. And then Anderton's running through, okay, we actually have three, he has three reports. You could call them minority reports. One saying he murders the guy. One saying, I forget what the second one says. That he I think doesn't the second one says that he doesn't. Because he finds out he's going to and then chooses not to. And then yeah, the because, third one. Because he's the police chief, he's privy to that information. Yeah. So once he gets the report of him being guilty of the crime, he can then use that information to change his mind, change the future. But then one of the other um, predictions of the future, Precogs predicts that he's not going to go through with the murder. But then the one after that predicts that he will again. Right. Which is, I think it's fascinating to think about, you know, the future. Like you can't really predict what's going to happen because as soon as one tiny thing is altered, like one piece of knowledge, it changes the whole thing. Cool idea that you could somehow stop crime before it happens but just the act of trying to do that changes people's you know actions and what they will or won't do yeah they've never actually committed the crime yeah so is it fair to punish them for something they haven't done which did you like more the short short story or the movie i saw the movie first years ago and really enjoyed it. So I probably would say that I liked the movie more. And there was a little more detail involved. But I really liked the short story as well. Yeah, same. I think I liked the movie a little more, but I liked them both. It's cool to think about, um, you know, this author coming up with this idea out of nowhere. Like the movie's based off of this, so they could take it and really think about it and add details. But what a neat short story idea. Um. Okay, did you have a favorite from the short stories we read, the four of them? I think I probably like The Fall of Edward Barnard the best. And a lot of that's just because I've been thinking a lot about financial things and things that lead to happiness in life, and that was a nice illustration of that. Yeah, I liked them all. I liked them for different reasons. Um, like the Charles one is kind of just like humorous and lighthearted. Uh, the Charles one, I figured it, we both figured out immediately two or three lines into the story what was going on. So I didn't find that one as interesting. Yeah, if we wouldn't have figured it out, it would have been The other cooler. stories kept me guessing and kept me thinking longer. Yeah. That's one of the things I like about short stories is often they don't tie up all the loose ends, so you have to think about it for a while. Yes. The first run-through, I've actually read these more than once. The first run-through, the one I liked the least was actually The Fall of Edward Barnard. But I find myself thinking about one, that one the most. So in the end, I think I might like it the best too. Just because it made me really think about different things relating to money and happiness and things. So good job picking that one. Well, I just took it as someone else's suggestion. 
But I like that one as well, because if you think about it for a while and then go back and read it again, your thinking about it is probably different by that point. Yeah, that's true. Do you have a favorite short story of all time? I mentioned I really like Stephen King. And so he's got several good ones, but there's a couple that I had my that I had Amy read a few years back that I found very entertaining, but they wouldn't be featured on this (laughs) podcast. So I really liked um, Quitter's Inc. as well as Dolan's Cadillac. Those are both good ones. So he's referring to Stephen King is not really a cleanish author. (laughs) It's true, but he is a master of short stories. And one of my favorite short stories of all time is Quitter's Inc. as well. I reread it again. It's been years since I read it. I was counting swear words to see if I could somehow get it on the podcast. And here it is showing up. It does have some swearing in it. It actually, for a Stephen King short story, it was actually not that bad. I would say there were like eight swears in it. No F words, which is pretty good for him. So if foul language doesn't bother you, check out Quitter's Inc. by Stephen King, one of Clay's all-time favorites. I also really enjoy short stories by Ray Bradbury. I don't know if you've ever read his, their science fiction, like space travel or aliens, things like that. I couldn't find a favorite to share, but if you're into short stories, check out Ray Bradbury, classic good science fiction stuff. Well, thanks for coming on. It was a joy having you on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks.